This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories from all of the American experience, love, death, music, sports, arts, history, with our partners at Hillsdale College, and of course, business, where most of us spend most of our days. We spend our days at work, and we especially love to bring you business stories from our American Dreamer series, and they've ranged from Mario Andretti to Don LaFrieda, and everything in between. The daughter of a single mom, by the way, Dawn, who started waiting tables at 10 years of age and by the age of 23 owned her very own restaurant, and now she owns 78 Denny's franchises across the country and started at the minimum wage and built herself up. We love stories like that. They happen every day here in America. And today we bring you another great story, this time with younger entrepreneurs who are still fighting for their peace of the American dream. And their story comes to us from the terrific folks at the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, who offer entrepreneurship classes for schools. Additionally, they offer summer boot camps on entrepreneurship, and they host competitions where young entrepreneurs can pitch their business ideas and win prize money for the launching of their enterprise. And we're now joined by two guys who won the National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge in 2013, and it's a $25,000 grand prize. Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okina, who have been friends since high school in the Chicago suburb of South Holland and who now both attend the University of Illinois. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having us. You bet. And before, yeah, thank you for having us. Oh, please. Thanks for joining us, guys. And before we start, uh, I want to talk to each of you individually about your families and what stirred you to think you wanted to be this thing called an entrepreneur. Not a lot of young people are thinking about owning their own business, particularly at your age. Uh, let's start with you and uh, Jesus. Talk about that for a second. Your early life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I come from a, um, a low-income immigrant family. My parents uh, immigrated from Mexico when I was younger uh, in search for, for a better future. So, so it has always been a matter of working hard in order to to succeed they've always instilled uh, the importance of a, a a strong work work ethic um so and also going through school i've always known that um what's also very important is that when you do something you love you've you've never have to work a day in your life that's one quote that i've always lived by that has very uh guided me through through life so for example i love uh, soccer, so so the opportunity to be able to combine that w- with business, it, it's it's it can't get any better than that. And that's a smart thing. I mean, doing what you love makes it easy to do what you're doing every day. And obviously, we're going to get into what you did with soccer and the business you made out of soccer in just a little bit. Uh, but uh, Tohib, tell us about you and your your passage uh, to entrepreneurship. Talk about your parents, where you were from. And how you got to this place called entrepreneurship? Sure, Lee. Um, so uh, my parents actually also immigrated from uh, Nigeria. Um, my dad came here earlier, uh, prior to the rest of the family, and then we joined him later in actually 2004. So um, yeah, it's not you know it's been over a decade, but still not that long ago. Um, and I think um, just in general, um, what's been instilled in just my family values is just hard work. <laughs> That's always been a a huge thing. Uh, my dad is a very huge example of that. Uh, my mom as well. So, um, 
I think I just I, I knew I was bound to you know really just uh, um, you know have that type of you know work ethic in me. Um, and when this opportunity uh, presented itself, I've also played soccer all my life, so something something I love and you know really cherish and still do even to this day. Um, and when this opportunity presented itself um, with you know a little bit of coaching and guiding, you know it was it was a no brainer. It's you know uh, entrepreneurship, um, startups, you know engineering, those type of things are you know what gives. Um, I think me and Jesus, you know, life. So, you know, it's 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 it was a no brainer for us to just go and pursue that, and it's been an amazing experience uh, uh, since then, especially through the help of the National uh, Foundation of uh, for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Well, talk to us about your dad, Tohi, because you lost your dad a few years ago, and it was a difficult thing. But how has that propelled you, and how has that motivated you? Um, I think um. You know, one thing, uh, and it's kind of sad, um, you know, losing your dad's not, not easy. Um, and, you know, a lot of times I think to myself, uh, you know, it, it sucks that I am just now kind of understanding how hard you worked um, now, you know, when I'm older and when he's gone. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, my dad was, I always tell people this, he's the hardest worker I've ever seen. Um, he made sure he provided for uh, me and my family made sure schooling was always taken care of and, you know, held high standards for us, um, even though we were immigrants and even though we weren't native to this country. Um, but, you know, uh, losing my dad was um, was tough, but I think that also, um, you know, kind of lit a fire in me. Um, you know, through him, I was able to kind of make some different life choices. Um, really, um, I think uh, through him also, I was able to change in faith also to, um, uh, become a Christian and also to just take stuff seriously, you know, um, I think it really told me, it really showed me that, you know, you know, life is short and, um, you know, you really got to just, um, you know, take it by the horns and really, um, do the most, uh, with what's given. He's always, uh, really instilled in me to whom much is given, much is expected. Um, and I've been presented with a lot of opportunities, um, you know, especially through all the different things that just happened past, you know, five years and, you know, much is expected, so I have to really make much of it. So uh, definitely thank you for my dad for really instilling those type of values in me. Yep, and your dad is still with you. In fact, both of your families are still with you. When we come back, we're going to dig into this business, this business of starting a business, and these young people who decided to do it. My goodness, this is the only thing that saves the country. Whatever the discussions are out there politically, if we don't start and grow new businesses, where are the jobs and then where do the taxes come from? When we come back... Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okenla, founders of T&J Soccer. It's a great American story. Immigrants from Mexico, immigrant family from Nigeria, came here with nothing and are living the American dream. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return to our American Dreamers segment. We're joined by Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okenla, founders of TNJ Soccer. And they won the $25,000 grand prize for their business proposal at the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge in 2013. And before we dig into that, we wanted to talk to Jesus. We had heard a bit about uh, the Tohib's father and how his work ethic was instilled in him, and he lost his dad. Jesus, tell us about what your family did in Mexico and what happened here, and talk about the values your your family instilled in you. Yeah, absolutely. So my parents uh, immigrated to uh, the United States uh, well before I was born, and and uh, we moved in, uh, into California. So I was born and raised in California, and they worked in the in the fields. So they so they were picking strawberries, and it was a t- I mean it's a tough it's a tough job uh, with standing heat. Um, trying to cover yourself from 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 the sun to not get sunburned, and it's just constant. It's, it's very very tough tough labor. So so seeing them just go through that every single day just to provide for for me and my family. Now I come from a from a very big family. Um, I have three older sisters, a younger brother. I have nine nephews and three nieces. Wow. So it's a, it's a, it's it's a it's a pretty big family, and um. I'm I'm the first one uh, uh, to to go to college. So, but what's behind that, and, and I can't thank uh, enough, is, is it's my parents. They've they've not only displayed that 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 hard that hard work, but they they've shown like completely relentlessness and 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 not giving up, which is what it's all about. Because uh, you can never lose hope, and that's something that has been um, um, just instilled in me. Through my family, um, after California, we then moved to we made that that move to Illinois, and my mom in the field she she got injured, so so she got dislocated and she no longer works. So so now having my dad be the only one to provide for for my family, it's 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 all very like motivating because first of all, I want to be able to to lead an example, be a role model to to other. My little siblings that I have, nephews, nieces, especially my little brother, to show them that it is possible to to go to college and and even start your own business and, and just pursue what you love, uh, regardless of, of anything. And and that's something that that very that motivates me a lot, especially just trying to give that that life to, just try to give as much back to my parents. Um, I, it, it must be hard uh, losing your father, which is which is something till he went through, but. Even though he is, it's 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 an inspiration the way he 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 goes through 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 life and, and everything he has accomplished so far. So so in overall, it's it's all about uh, in me is just about not giving up and and continue to 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 wake up and and, and work hard every day because it is possible. Yeah, and and, 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 and I feel like I have that responsibility to to show my my little nephews and. And you bet. And and hard work is at the core of everything. And you're a lu- you're a lucky guys to have had that instilled in you because there's nothing more a parent can do than do what they did for both of you. Because if you don't have that, you're doomed in in life. No matter what your status, no matter your class, what what your class. And by the way, if you guys go ahead and make good, you know, don't let your kids get off easy. I mean, you know, a lot of people do that. They work hard. They get some. They they accomplish some things monetarily, and then they tell their kids not to work. 
it's sort of crazy, which brings us to our, our next question. First jobs. We love pe- talking to people about what that first job was and what they learned yeah. from it. And Tahib, you first. What was your first job and what did you learn from it? That's funny. Uh, so first of all, yeah, like my kids definitely aren't getting off easy. <laughs> easy. Um, <laughs> but um, my first job, my first job was actually um, cutting cutting grass. Uh, I think it was my sophomore year of high school, uh, summer. I think that was when, you know, uh, I, I I gained the trust of my parents to be able to, you know, get good grades and also, you know, add extracurriculars. Um, so we, um, I worked for my township and essentially it was, um, we, we cut grass for senior citizen, citizens of our um, neighborhood. And um, it, it was, it was tough. That was probably the closest I've gotten to manual labor. And it was a, it was a rough summer. Um, so we would, you know, be up at like 6 a.m. every morning. It was kind of like a first come, first serve type of thing. So, you know, the early you cut, wake up, you know, the more lawns you get. And um, we got paid $5 a lawn. And, you know, if you want to make $100 that day, you know, you'd be having to cut 25 lawns. So we'd, you know, regularly go through 25, 30 lawns, you know, 6 to like like 7 p.m. type of 13-hour days, you know. And we we would have made like, you know, maybe two hundred dollars. Which is it was good back then, you know, as a high school sophomore, that was a, that was a lot. But yeah, I mean, I, after that summer, like, you know, I, I had to like learn how to, you know, pick things up properly because we'd have to unload and reload the the truck and my back was just like <laughs> took a lot of hit. Um but I think through that, yeah, I was able to learn how to work hard. <laughs> I think that was just kinda uh, uh, a a common or like a part of the process of learning, you know what it is to, you know, just wake up early and get things done, or you know, you know, stuff sucks, but you know, just got to get through it because the means might not um, be very pretty, but the end is, you know, the end is worth it. So I think it would just allow me to be able to see a clearer end, even if it is just a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars. Um, I think that benefits me a lot now while I'm in school. You know, I try to wake up every day at six a.m. You know, my church has a morning prayer type of thing. So 6 a.m. every day I'm up. By 7.30, I'm, my day started, you know, doing things I need to do. And, you know, got to sleep early because I got to wake up the next day at 6. So, you know, 11, 11.30, I'm in bed. Um, and I think I can date that all the way back to, you know, high school, that first job. <laughs> well, that's great. And Jesus, your first job, and what do you remember about it? <laughs> my first job. So I, I've I love the sport of soccer, so I've always, throughout my life, tried to stay close to it. Um, if it's not as a soccer player, it's as a coach or something else. But my first job was uh, a soccer referee. Now, that job turned out to be a lot tougher than I expected. So I thought I was just going to, you know, call some rules and, 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 and just watch some soccer. But, right. wow. Being a soccer referee and, and the moment you have all the parents yell at you and, and all the coaches just screaming because it's so competitive and you make a call and one team likes it, the other team doesn't. And it's just like, man, what, what do I do? And it's just trying not to take uh, anything personal at all. And um, you know, all, the, all the critique and, and you're a terrible ref, you're horrible. That was a foul. I'm just like, wow, like. Like it's just me. I don't have eyes behind my back. I couldn't see everything. So it was it, it was a lot tougher than I expected. It, yep. It's a job that requires you to have like a like have like a like a thick skin. Just just knowing that you're not gonna make everybody happy with with what you do. It's 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 just a matter of doing the the right thing that that you think is the right thing. But 
that's something that I was able to learn a lot from just in general, just going through all the, the critique and um, um, having people just be not uh, uh, satisfied with your cause. And, and just, it made me really like know like the value of money too. Just knowing like, wow, stuff is not easy. And, 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 and yeah, it was a, it was a fun time. I refereed for uh, three, three to four years. And then I, I became a, a youth soccer coach, just teaching little kids how to play soccer, U8, U9. It was very, very fun. Just seeing the the the, the passion in, in the eyes of these little kids just trying to play. So so that's something that I also worked on. And now um, here, I mean, I'm currently just working remotely for our company, just doing some web design. But But, yeah, I mean, first job was a soccer referee. Well, that's great. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that first business, guys. And by the way, uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I was asked to referee the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade local Catholic league. And I didn't know just how excited parents got. And I faced the same thing. And by the way, especially when you're doing an away game and you got to call the, you got to call the foul against the home team. Uh, or the away oh, team yeah. at a home game. It's just so painful. And I got to tell you, I learned a lot then. You just got to call them how you see them. They're exactly. never going to like you. And it's really exactly. hard work. You're as tired as the athletes. When that game is <laughs> over, you are running that court, and you don't get to have a substitute. When we come back, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, and we love talking to American Dreamers. And we've never talked to two this young, Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okenla. And by the way, they just happened to have won a really nice prize from the National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge back in 2013, and it was a $25,000 prize for their business idea. When we come back, we're going to dig into that idea here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Jesus Fernandez and Tohi Bokenla. This is our American Dreamers series. So guys, you've known each other since middle school, as I learned during the break, and now you're in high school together, and you stumble on a class. By the way, the curriculum for this class was provided by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Tell us about this class. Tell us what happens. Yeah, so... um we uh, actually, it's a very funny story. <laughs> um, so it was my senior year, uh, Jesus' um, junior year, and I was looking, you know, senior year, you got a little bit senior senioritis, you're just trying to graduate. So I was just looking for, you know, the most kind of intuitive courses I can take. So I'm like, okay, it's a business course. Business is pretty, you know, business is, you know, business. So um, I took that class, and Jesus ended up taking that class too, Um and we were actually in different different sections, but we played on a soccer team together. So we're like, um, the, the challenge of the class, hey, come up with a business plan. That's the whole, you know, curriculum, kind of like what we actually do here in college. You know, the curriculum is come up with a business plan for a business. So, you know, we get like this uh, one-week period where we just think of an idea, you know, just you know, go through your day, think of the idea. 
you know, we meet at practice, me and Jesus, we're like, oh, yeah, you're in that class too, right, man? Yeah, what's your idea? Man, I don't know, man. Um, no. Uh, you know, we just, we'll, we'll, we'll think of something, or I'll think of something. Okay, I'll think of something. And then we went together, we went through practice, and I think about, like, the third day or third practice, we're like, you know, what's kind of annoying, um, our teammates were complaining, you know, what's really annoying is that we hate, you know, when the shin guards, you know, are just never stable. But then I hate wearing my straps and sleeves, and also with, with high school soccer, like, you, your straps have to be the same color as your sock. And we were a purple, you know, our, our team colors were purple. You know, we can't find purple Nike socks anywhere. And what if your team color is yellow or pink? Or, you know what I mean? So it was just really a hassle. Um, so we're like, me and Jesus should get a light bulb in your head. Like, okay, this might be something. So we actually go to the teacher and say, hey, I know he's in a different section, but could we work together on our business? Um, reluctantly, I think, uh, like, okay, yeah, sure, we can make it work. You guys are good students and so on and so forth. So the idea, you know, it was just kind of an idea at first, but then, you know, our teacher kind of saw something in us uh, along with, you know, the Nifty system. They saw something in us that, you know, they don't, they didn't normally see. So they actually did a lot of work in, into pushing us, you know. Uh, I was just trying to graduate. Jesus, you know, we should take a class. And they were like, hey, you know, this is a good idea. I'm like, yeah, it's a good idea. But, you know, uh, we, you know, just being young, we didn't, you know, see like, okay, wow, this can turn into, you know, what, what it is now. Um, but then, you know, lo and behold, they pushed us a little bit more. We went and got some material. Jesus's mom came in clutch and uh, really just, you know, sold up our first prototype. We showed it to, um, yeah, we showed it to the teacher. He's like, "This is amazing." We showed it to his Nifty correspondent. This is amazing. And then from then on, we're like, "Okay, we're fully for it." We went to compete in the um, Chicago um, competition. Killed that first place, got the first place prize. We're like, whoa, whoa, that's amazing. And then we went to regionals, killed that first place. And then we went to, um, I think we went to one more before we went to nationals, killed that first place as well. And all of these were getting prizes to go along with it. And then we went to nationals. And, um, you know, a lot of stuff happened to nationals, but we ended up killing that too, first place. Um, and, you know, that's how, you know, we got the prize money. We got all the networking all that stuff, and that just launched our business to, you know, essentially the what it is now. We've done a lot of work on it, but, you know, essentially that's the background foundation of what our business is now. And when you made the pitch, I mean, folks on this show know Shark Tank, because, heck, we play a lot of the segments from Shark Tank, because I think it's important for people to at least have some notional idea of how a company's evaluated, what a pitch sounds like, who investors are and why you got to give up some of your equity in your business for uh, some of the percentage of your business for some money from someone who has money to give. And it's just interesting that people at least get an introduction into it. Who, who pitched this? Did you guys pitch this together? And what was your pitch, guys? In a short amount of time, our audience is listening. What was your pitch? What were you telling people you were selling? Sell us. Um, so so we, we pitched this together. Uh, very cool pitch, I think. There's a lot of videos of us out there. Maybe we can link it with this uh, interview. But um, basically came in, hey, soccer is the most popular sport in the world. And if you're a soccer player, um, you know this. Um, but, you know, one irritating thing is that uh, when your shin guard slides out of place um, and leaving your shin bone, the most commonly fractured long bone in your body, exposed, it's not fun. This can get, take you out the game and also cause injury, which is essentially the ultimate impediment to becoming greater. So, and then we would continue hope, but with our product, uh, worry no more because we have the perfect solution. And then we do this fits bump thing. Hey, I'm Toby Bokemla, and Jesus will go, hey, I'm Jesus Fernandez, and we are TNJ Soccer. 
And then we just break it down from financials. Okay, this is how much it'll cost, or this is the problem actually. This is the solution. This is the current market solutions, and this is why our solutions are better. Here are the finances.、Um, here's what it takes to start it up.、Um, here's what we need for backup,、um, and then here's what we plan our、uh, our future goal ahead. Our、um, basically our vision. We cast it for the audience,、uh, for the、uh, judges, and it's just like Shark Tank. Actually, it's, it's no different. A lot of people tell us to go and check Shark Tank. And we're like we've we've done it, you know, four, five, six times actually. Yep.、Um, they we'd pitch it to them, and then they would just drill us with questions. You know, okay, if if I want to order, you know, fifteen thousand pairs of this right now, how would you guys get it done? Or you know, what would stop Nike from、uh, stealing this product right now? You know, those things. And we'd have to, you know, really、um, answer those questions with eloquence, with、uh, a lot of factual、um, things, and with honesty too. If Nike were trying to steal this product, they would just steal it, right? But We were open to synonymize our name with the product, so on and so forth, and you know it really gave the、um, judges a lot of faith, and、um, you know, and I think that's really because of our confidence and just the way we knew our business.、Um, the judges really bought in, and it really helped us to you know win these challenges. And by the way, you guys did approach Major League Soccer,、um, and you've you've had some ups and some downs, and some successes and and some setbacks. And by the way, that's everybody in business. Talk about what happened when you went to see Major League Soccer.、Uh, Jesus, you, yeah, you want to handle so, that?、Uh, so we we had we got the opportunity to、uh, meet with、uh, the CEO of、uh, Chicago Fire, and was able to show our product to them, and 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 it was a great opportunity to be able to have they they were able to bring,、uh, bring in、uh, some professional soccer、uh, players from the team. So they see the sock and 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 they love it. I mean, they love the the concept.、Uh, and we were able to get feedback such as, "Yo, maybe uh, uh, this could be a little bit of lighter material in general." But but I mean, those are, those are minor things that can easily be fixed. What was important to us was 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 seeing, "Yo, does the concept work? Does it have potential?" And and, and we were able to receive very promising uh, uh, feedback and, and and very positive that that was able to like、uh, feel. Feel us, and, and and now, right now, we're currently、um, trying to push our first order out there and get the product out there, and 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 make、uh, modifications. And we're already working on the second version of the sock, and it's to try to、uh, get the best product possible. Yeah, and kind of to backtrack on, you know, that was more that was a little bit more positive. You know, we got you know some exposure in that end, but. Uh, a little bit more on the downs of business. Again, you said it's part of business.、Um, uh, it was tough. So we、um, even just、uh, you know, Jesus made it sound easy. Okay, our first you know our first order, but to get that first order was ridiculously hard. That was one of the hardest things I've you know, ever done in my life. Trying to、um, you know、uh, contact a manufacturer. We first fielded almost every single manufacturing option in the、oh, United States. We reached out.、Um, we reached out to over sixty manufacturers, and, and it was a it was a bumpy road because either one they wouldn't take us serious, or number two, they didn't have a minimum order quantity that would work for us. So, so getting getting the manufacturer was was tough. Yeah, and then along with that,、um, we were in talks with the manufacturer.、Uh, I think actually a couple connections linked us to it. Okay, this works. Okay, this works. We're almost about、um, finishing with the prototype, and then they're like, "Honestly, again, the minimal order quantity thing." Because we're a small business, so we're not ordering thirty-five thousand from you, right?、Um, they go, "Honestly, we just can't handle this this small of a capacity、um, because you know we were having to modify this." So last minute, <laughs> manufacturer would bail on us, 
and then we have to migrate all of our products, all of the schemas, all of the designs to a new manufacturer. Well, hold that thought, guys, because when we come back in our final segment with you two, we're going to talk about other problems, other successes, opportunities, what it's like to be an entrepreneur in college. Is there time for dating? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment with our two youngest American dreamers so far, Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okenla, founders of TNJ Soccer. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of our hour-long conversation with Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okelna, University of Illinois students and the founders of TNJ Soccer, the best soccer sock out there. You can learn more about their sock and buy it at tnjs.co. In last segment, we left off talking about their struggle to find someone to make their sock. On this manufacturing problem, we see it on Shark Tank a lot, where the, the person will say, you know, right now it costs us $3 to make the product, and we could get it made in, you know, China for $1.50, but we'd have to order 50000 and the manufacturer is saying, well, you know, if you don't have the money, then we can't do the business. So very often, people are going to the Shark Tank for money so they can lower their price, so they can actually increase the size and scale of their business. Where were you caught? Where were you guys stuck in the process? And what did you learn from that? So he... Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that's a, the proverbial entrepreneurial problem that you face all the time. You need a lot, but don't have money. Um, but the people want you to buy a lot, and that costs a lot of money. Um, so we, we actually got stuck um, in the, uh, at the, as I was explaining, the... Uh, getting the uh, right manufacturer to give us a small minimum order quantity and, um, you know, addressing the downs again of the business. Um, you know, this took us quite a, took a hit on us. It took us, again, we won the uh, competition in, in 2013 and we, um, you know, and we kind of, you know, launched it and we're, okay, yeah, let's just make this stuff. My freshman year, I was like, yeah, let's do this. I don't, I don't care. We'll, you know, we'll handle school too. And then, you know, manufacturer built out on us. We have to find another one. Um, finding a manufacturer isn't hard, but finding one with such a low minimal order quantity was tough. And, um, and I think on that search um, was when, uh, uh, or what, uh, searching and finding uh, that right manufacturer uh, almost actually, you know, took us out of a tailspin because, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with school. We're trying to, you know, get our grades. You know, we still have to be great students as well, um, you know, as, as long as, as, with regards to credibility and, you know, that kind of, you know, made the business die down a lot. Um, but I think that's why it's really good to um, have uh, a partner, but not only just a partner, but someone you're, you're so close with and you've known for a while because, you know, when someone's, you know, just having such a tough time, the other one can really just uh, help rouse the other person up. And that's, you know, that's been the, the cycle, um, honestly, for the past four years. It's, you know, I'm not feeling it, whether it's, you know, school's tough or family stuff. And Jesus, you know, will pick up slack and really – push it and, you know, show me like, bro, this is worth it. And, you know, I can, I do that vice versa as well whenever it gets tough for him. And we've just developed such a great chemistry. So, so with the manufacturer able to find one um, eventually, um, and then honestly, it was just a race to raise the money. You know, we worked, (laughs) 
we worked uh, put up a, a lot of our money and um you know, I think uh, we would be we uh, skimmed from our families as well, you know, because they really want us to get this too. So working and family backing and stuff, we're able to get our first order with actually a lot. Um, it was a large quantity. The cost was ridiculous again because it was a relatively small quantity. Um, uh, but you know that that really um, there was that really that trough that down part that um, we really had to go through. And now I think we're looking on the up and up. Uh, things are very good. We're at, we're getting investor interest, and you know we're just trying to secure teams and and all these different things. So. Uh, there's a different set of problems that we have to face now, but I think at least that last one is, you know, over with. Hey, Zeus, which one of you guys is the sales guy? You know, in Shark Tank, you know, you always got Cuban going, where are the sales? Or, or, or Mr. Wonderful, where are the sales? Who's the sales guy <laughs> here? And you've ordered a, a, a thousand pair. Who's selling them and how many have you sold so far? And how, how are you doing on that front, guys? Hey, Zeus? No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so out of a, um, we we've both been been going uh, and and selling. I mean, we're currently in school, and uh, I normally try to go home every other weekend and just con- contacting coaches. I mean, as a soccer, I used to be a soccer free, which that actually that first job helped me now as as being able to con- uh, have those those connections with other soccer coaches. So I'll just email them and reach out to them and show them the product. So. Every other weekend, I'll go home and, and arrange meetings to try to meet with these coaches and show the product and go to soccer domes and just, just word of mouth, word of mouth. And, and Tohib has done the same. And that's why uh, things, have, things have worked, that, that, that teamwork that, that I'm going this weekend. And if one of us has other stuff, if the other one is, 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 is pushing it. So just it, overall reaching to coaches. You're just talking to the coaches. And, Tohib, uh, what, are you, what is it costing you to make these socks, and what are you selling them for? Um, so right now our, co- our, our socks are priced at $20, um, and uh, that, that's for various reasons, um, but also it's because of the cost, um, the cost right now, are ranging around 5 to, like, 7 bucks, um, which is ridiculous. That's ridiculously high, but that's because of our, <laughs> our ridiculously low minimum order quantity. Um, our price, our costs can easily go down, but again, we need that investment, that uh, initial insertion of um, funds. Uh, but um, we also, you know, we're pricing it at twenty dollars because our socks are are great socks, right? They're not, they're not cheap socks. They're not. They're. Um, we try to have as good or better quality than than the best Nike socks you find on the market, the best Adidas socks you find on the market. So we we don't sell bad socks, right? Um, so that. You know, exclusivity type of um, very nice uh, quality, uh, along with our high cost, is what's um, pushing it towards the twenty dollar barrier. Um, but then again, we as, as we scale, hopefully, um, as you know, our production scale, then uh, we're able to you know uh, minimize cost, and hopefully, we can drop that price um, to be to be a little bit lower. But again, not up to where we're devaluing um, the quality and the uh, of the product. Right? You bet. Keeping yeah. your keeping your brand strong. Uh, but trying to make more money, uh, or at least lowering the cost to your sellers or your your wholesalers, and and ultimately the retailers and the customers and the people who buy these socks. Hey guys, what about exactly. Jesus? To dating life, you know, you're in you're in school, you're working hard, and then you got this business, and you're working hard to sell the clothes. How do you sell yourself to the to that Mrs. Wright? Do you have time for that? <laughs> oh man, well it it, it does. Take a lot of time just just going to classes and, and, and trying to sell socks. You know, I mean, trying to sell socks every day. Um, but I mean, there's 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 time for everything too. <laughs> but uh, 
but yeah, I mean, you, the, the the focus though, the the main thing is just tr- trying to stay focused. The, the, that that time will will also come, and it's just a matter of uh, just just trying to trying to stay grounded. Just just knowing that yes, but just avoid unnecessary distractions too yeah well you know you're keeping your head down you're working hard and if uh, if the light lady comes around great but you're trying to stay Absolutely. out of trouble you're trying to keep focus and let me tell you you'll stay out of a lot of trouble when you're as busy as you are tahib what about you is there a mrs right in your life right now tahib um absolutely not um i uh, <laughs> uh i just just the type of person i am um I can only do like, you know, four things at a time very well. And, you know, I think my mom always tells me anything that's worth doing at all is worth doing well. So I think I know my capacity as for now, but I'm graduating soon. Um, I think uh, just in general, also my kind of stance is that, um, again, for me, just my my Christian values is that, you know, I want to just handle what I need to handle first. um, um, And then maybe I'll figure out, you know, and if I'm going to date someone is to marry them. Right. So I'm not, you know, in that mindset yet. So that's just kind of not in my radar right now. (laughs) Well, good for you. And, uh, and, and men who have daughters right now would like to hear that. Uh, Tahib, that's that's nice. Uh, last thought here for both of you. Jesus, first, and just quickly, if you could, what has the network for teaching entrepreneurship meant to your lives? And what would you say to a student or a school administrator listening right now? Oh, the the National Foundation of Entrepreneurship, NIFTI, which is their abbreviations, has really changed our lives. I, I believe I can speak for both of us, but but it has really changed my life. Just um in general, that, that support, that learning about business, and, I mean, just overall encouraging and showing that it is possible for, for someone to start a business. I mean, there's many people out there that might have an idea uh, and just don't have the resources and, and, and don't, have, don't know where to go. You know, there's, there's, there's a million of great ideas out there, and it's just a matter of, of trying to execute and, and meeting that right person to guide you. So if I would speak to a school administrator, it's, it's, it's definitely tried and, and and offer this course and offer that support to to young entrepreneurs and 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 that spirit of yo um, there's a million problems out there and, and, and just a matter of coming up with your idea and knowing that you can push it through and 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 helping with that those resources and and pointing them to the right direction because everybody deserves to 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 achieve forward and Tahib, the same question to you what would you have to say to a parent or a teacher about the network for teaching entrepreneurship? Uh, I'd say three words, uh, network, 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 uh, network. Uh, I think uh, they're just, they've been, you know, an amazing support. I think they've offered a majority of the things um, that got us started and is keeping us going. It's coming and stemmed from them. So um, honestly, if an administrator doesn't have this, you know, system in their school already, it's not, I, I, do it <laughs> now because um, entrepreneurship is, it's the future, um, and and I think Nifty has got a head start on it. Thank you both. Jesus Fernandez, Tohibo Kenla, founders of TNJ Soccer, and winners of a $25,000 grand prize in 2013 from the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. And you can find their business, both of these guys, and purchase their great innovative socks at tjns.co. This is Our American Story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Nirvana, and it's off their first album. It's called School. And we love bumping in with music that relates to the segments we're about to do. I didn't know that song, and I'm a Nirvana fan. Thanks for that, Jesse. And uh, joining us right now to talk about a story that we keep hitting in various ways is Angela Browning. And we recently came across a Facebook group filled with mothers and parents, nearly 6,000 of them, who are working on changing the law in Florida to fix a big problem in their kids' lives. But it's not just a Florida problem. It's a national problem. Our kids just aren't getting enough, well, some would say not nearly enough, recess in school. And a new group of so-called recess moms has had enough. We're joined again by recess mom, Angela Browning. Angela, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Angela, before we start, we always like to know, you know, where, where are you in Florida? What particular town? Talk about your family a little bit. And then ultimately, let's talk about what led you to this space. Sure. Well, I live in Orlando, Florida, which is in Orange County, uh, with my husband and our three boys. We have 10-year-old twins uh, who just started fourth grade last week and a six-year-old who started first grade. Um, I actually have a, uh, a law degree from Ave Maria School of Law, which is now down in Naples, Florida. Um, but I work as a paralegal for an insurance company. I like having the flexibility to be able to volunteer in my kids' classrooms uh, and, and be there for them when they need me. So, um, so that was a choice that I made. You bet. And so you know a little bit about the intersection of the law and the culture, particularly Ave Maria does a great job of doing that. And Ave Maria is a Catholic law school founded by the Domino's Pizza founder, Tom Monahan, and they do a great job at preparing people to do just what Angela's doing. Uh, so, Angela, your, your kids uh, suddenly find themselves without a recess. Talk a little bit about where that came from, because obviously there had to be an anti-recess movement before there was a pro-recess movement, only that anti-recess movement probably had nothing to do with parents. Where did this thing spring up from? Whose idea was it? Sure. Well, what happens is, you know, our school districts tell us we, you know, we didn't cancel recess. But but what did happen is that uh, somewhere along the line, this testing uh, really just took over in our classrooms. And the focus switched from the well-being of our children to... Uh, you know, making sure that these children do well on these tests because there are very high stakes attached to them here in Florida. That's where our schools are graded. Um, our teachers, their VAM scores now come from those from those test scores. Um, so funding comes from them. And so my children, uh, all of a sudden, were coming home complaining about school, complaining that the day was too long, crying, asking me not to send them back to school. And my older boys had just begun second grade. Um, so I just, it just caused me to wake up and ask what was going on. Why all of a sudden were my eight-year-olds, who are supposed to love school and love learning, um, begging me not to send them back? And, and so you're a parent, and obviously you, you take parenting really seriously because you could be practicing law, and what you're instead doing is doing paralegal work so that you can time shift and you can move, move the work around and you can have flexibility to be a present parent. So where did it spring in your head that this was an idea worth fighting for? And then what were the steps you took to fight? Well, I'll tell you, the first thing that I did was I asked. And that's what I think is really important. You know, we tell our group members, ask your kids if they're getting recess. Because before this, 
I didn't even think to ask. So I asked my boys, well, what, what about recess when you go out and you get to play with your friends? Don't you get to have fun at recess? And they said, well, we don't get recess that often anymore. And I said, what do you mean you don't get recess that often anymore? And they said, well, we only get to go to recess once or twice a week when we don't have PE. And I, I was just horrified. I mean, some of my best memories during elementary school happened on the playground. And so I looked into it and I realized that my children were getting 15 minutes of recess once or twice a week. Uh, and I had a friend who, um, who lives near to me, but her daughters go to another school. And she and I talked about it. It was the same thing. Her kids were down to uh, two 20-minute recesses a week. And we just decided, you know, this is not okay. It's not okay for us. Our children are young. They have a right to be children. They have a right to play. Playing is developmentally appropriate learning for elementary school children. And we just talked one day in early October of 2014 and decided it was stop time to stop complaining to our friends and, and start being advocates for our children. No, this is a great story. And I, uh, just a little backwards before we go forwards in the next segment. The, the testing and the state testing, and you raised that. And there, there are lots of us who believe that you've got to hold teachers and schools accountable. So we don't, sure. we don't hate testing. But the question sure. is, and I know my little girl's experiencing this here in Mississippi. It, she'll say, Dad, it never stops. It's yeah. test after test after test. We're testing for the test. We're prepping for the test. Then after the test, we take another test. And so in a sense, you're not saying you don't want any accountability for the schools because we need a way to measure schools. It's just testing gone wild. Absolutely. One hundred percent agree. I am not opposed to testing. I am opposed to uh, a, a culture where the stakes of testing are so high that it takes over our classrooms. Uh, we lose centers in the younger grades. We lose recess. We lose access to physical education. We lose access to art and music. These children are being tested and assessed, and they are being taught to fill in bubbles. And we need to teach children to think critically. We need to, to test them. We need to assess where they are. We need to make sure that we are seeing learning gains in our classrooms. But we can't let it take over teaching. It's we a, need to teach these children. That's so well said. And by the way, these very things we're cutting out might just help raise those test scores, Angela. That's the point, too, that test scores are complicated and the human mind is complicated. And you can't put people in a box. And my goodness, you can't anesthetize them by just having them repeat over and over the same old thing so they can fill out a bubble on a sheet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Recess Moms. And Angela Browning is one of them, and she's fighting the fight in Orlando and in the state of Florida. More after these messages with Angela.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love it when citizens take a stand and punch back at the bureaucracies that rule their lives and our lives. And it happens in every walk of life, but no place worse than our local schools. And one mom, well, she decided to fight back against lack of recess. And by the way, it's not just recess, as we learned in the last segment. It's so many other things uh, because of testing regimes that are now crowding out space for our kids' development and particularly their creative outlets in, in schools across this country. It's not just a Florida problem, but we have one mom, Angela Browning, who has sparked a mini revolution in the state of Florida, and we pick up where we left off. Angela, so you know this is a problem, you identify it. I think what moms typically do is they go, and thank goodness there are present moms in the school, uh, they go, let's go to the school board. So what happens right. next? Uh, so we created a petition uh, for Orange County. We created a Facebook page. Uh, we grew our, our number of moms, so to speak. Um, we went to our school board, and we presented them with binders full of research. We came upon the research by accident, um, but there are very few subjects on which all of the experts agree, and recess is one of them. Uh, The American Academy of Pediatrics, the National Association for Sport and Physical Education, the CDC, the list goes on and on. They all find that recess is a critical part of the school day and crucial to a child's development. And so... We brought this research to our school board. We presented them uh, with this research. We literally begged and pleaded um, for them to do the right thing, to restore 20 minutes of daily recess for all elementary school students in our district. And the answer was a resounding no. Um, It wasn't just a resounding no. We actually had school board members from the bench uh, say things like, if you take away the play, 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 the school gets an A, A, A. Oh, my goodness. Obviously, we were horrified. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And by the way, how condescending, and this is always what bugs you, is if you know different and you're a citizen and you go to these school boards, they act as if you're the rabble, like you don't have an informed opinion. And that may be one of the dumbest things anybody in education could ever say to somebody. And I say that as a dad who won superintendent of the year and teacher of the year a tremendous educator, and he always fought for creative space for his kids and things like recess because he knew that's how you had an engaged child. So the school board blows you off, but little do they know, well, there was a lawyer in their midst and someone who was not, and a mom, even worse, a mom who is a lawyer and has some time. Talk about the next step, Angela. Well, we contacted our legislator who um, ironically happens to be a teacher in our district, uh, we, we went to him and we said, uh, listen, this is the problem. We have, um, we have presented our school board with solutions. They're not interested in them. They are interested in uh, giving us more and more excuses. And we need help. We don't know what to do. And he said to us, very honestly, he said, I don't know if I can help you, but I'm going to research this problem, and I'm sure as heck going to try. And, and he went back and he researched the problem. He saw that, that we had gone about this the right way, and and he called us one day, uh, and he said, listen, I'm on my way back home from Tallahassee, and I want you to know that when I get home, I'm going to write a bill, and we're going to solve this problem throughout the state of Florida once and for all. Um, and we were thrilled. We, uh, we reached out and joined with other recess moms who had their own recess efforts in districts across the state of Florida. Um, we, we have moms that represent 24 uh, counties, 
and um, we just banded together, and we decided that we were gonna we were gonna try to get this bill passed. And what happened? Because it's quite it's almost a thriller, Angela. Because each step you think you're coming up, and then whack, you get whacked again. And then thank goodness for persistent parents, you just keep coming back at them. What happened next? Well, uh, the bill was filed in Tallahassee in December of 2015. Uh, we worked our butts off trying to get the bill heard in committee. Um, we traveled to Tallahassee as recess moms. Uh, we would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, get ready, get in the car, drive four hours uh, north to Tallahassee, uh, spend all day meeting with state representatives and state senators, uh, eat dinner, and then come back and get home about midnight. So we managed to get the bill through the entire House with the help of our sponsor in the House, um, who, as I said, was Representative Renee Placencia. We were absolutely thrilled. There were only two legislators on the floor who voted against our bill. In the Senate, however, our first committee of reference was the Pre-K through 12 Education Committee, and that was chaired by a senator by the name of John Legg, uh, who did not like our bill. He said he felt that recess should continue to be handled locally. He refused to meet with us refused to take our phone calls, refused to respond to our emails. Um, he, he really would have nothing to do to us with us. So unfortunately, we weren't able to get the bill uh, through the Senate. Uh, but we dusted ourselves off. Uh, we have been working in the off-season, uh, and we're really, really thrilled about how things look for us next year. We've, um, we've made some really great progress. Well, good for you, because the school board was counting on you going away. And by the way, as my dad always said, he loved active parents, but so many superintendents didn't because they they were seen as impediments and blockage to just doing what they felt like doing. And for my dad's sake, it was always, let's get the buy-in of the parents, because there's nothing like parents who agree with educators. It can be a really, you can you can make some great changes. And you didn't quit. You, you, got, you got a 112 to 2 vote in the House. The Senate blocks you. Um, and you're back at it again. Talk to other moms listening out there in other states, Angela, about what they can do. Sure. Well, we're going to need, you know, we're going to need help to get this done. But as I said, we believe this will be our year. It's really important for parents to get engaged and get involved. Until I asked my children um, what they were doing at recess and how often they had it, I didn't know. So you've really got to ask your children, do you get that break in the school day and do you get it every single day? regardless of whether or not your kids have PE. If you find that your children are not getting that break, then you need to go to your principal and you need to ask them to implement a universally uh, recommended research-based 20-minute daily recess period. And you need to be proud of your advocacy for your children. You need to be willing to say to your principal, look, I think you're a wonderful person. I'm asking you to do this at the school level. If you can't do it or if you won't do it, I just want to let you know that I'm going to keep moving up the ladder until I get it done. Good for you. That's really that's really what we've done uh, on the state level. We are so proud to say that we have secured the um, the support of the future Speaker of the House and the future Senate President next year. Um, our bill will be sponsored again by Representative Placencia, and it will be sponsored in the Senate this year by a senator out of Miami-Dade County, um, Senator Flores, who is a mom who has young children. So um, so we love that. And, and I think it's really great, um, a really great kind of keep pushing, keep trying success story to just share with your audience that the future Speaker of the House, who has now committed to support our bill next session, 
is actually one of the two legislators who voted against the bill in the House last wow. year. Good for you. And that's the par- power of a lot of moms continuing to push. And in the end, it is a democracy, and it is, in the end, uh, a state legislature that better respond to large groups of people or be voted out of office. I had one last question. For parents sure. who hear physical ed or PE class is a substitute for recess, explain to the folks why PE I mean, I know the answer to this, but what's the difference sure. between PE and recess as it relates to your kids' development? Sure. PE is an incredibly important part of your child's education, but it is separate distinct from recess. Um, There are unique skills that children learn during unstructured play on the playground. That's where they learn to problem solve. That's where they learn leadership skills and social skills and coping skills. Um, And those things cannot be replicated in the classroom. PE is a class. It is structured. It is teacher-led. Your children are directed to do A, B, and C. Uh, It is not unstructured free play. And here in Florida, there are Florida standards attached to the PE curriculum, and those teachers are required to show learning gains. Learning gains. As a matter of fact, fifth graders uh, um, in our district or in our state are actually tested in PE at the end of the year. So PE is certainly worthwhile, but it's not a break from the rigor and the curriculum of the classroom. And the research that I referred to earlier shows that academics improve when children get a break from the classroom that is unstructured so that they can truly rejuvenate, refresh their minds, and come back to the classroom. And Angela, we all know this because we need that time in our lives throughout our lives. We just know this to be true, but it's great to have the research to back it up. Moms, recess moms, fighting for recess to be put back into Florida schools. Angela Browning leading the fight. Angela, thanks so much for joining us, and let's keep in touch and find out what happens in this legislative session coming up. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, where we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, and business. One of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications, and he's the author of The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And here's a story from that great collection. Take it away, Carl. Here's a pop quiz for you. What do you think of when I say these names? Mount Vernon, Montpelier, and Monticello. No, those aren't ski resorts. 
I'm hoping that the history-minded among you may recognize those as the homes of some of our country's most revered founding fathers. I bet lots of listeners have actually visited at least one of those sites. These homes rank as some of America's top cultural treasures, and last year close to two million people toured them to learn more about our society and the impressive men who wrote our Declaration of Independence, led our revolutionary soldiers, created our Constitution, and served as America's first presidents. And I bet many of you are assuming one other thing, that these iconic homes of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison must be national parks. Surely those kinds of American shrines are preserved and kept open to the public by the federal government, right? Actually, wrong. Every one of those founders' homes was rescued from ruin, restored to its current glorious state, and presented to an appreciative public by a privately funded nonprofit. And none of these preservation charities takes even a dime of government money. Let's start with George Washington's Mount Vernon. It was literally falling apart when a bunch of little old ladies who were cruising by the property on a Potomac riverboat were horrified to learn that it wasn't being treated with the respect they thought the ancestral home of our first president deserved. The ladies took up a collection, banded together to form the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, and rallied thousands of other men and women to donate and volunteer to undo this national disgrace. The Mount Vernon Ladies Association managed to buy the place in 1860 and then poured themselves into returning it to peak condition. In restoring the home with careful attention to period detail, they actually helped launch the historic preservation movement in America. They also took remarkable measures to preserve the long country views of the river, the opposite shoreline, and other nearby properties, so the sight lines could be preserved just as Washington and his many distinguished visitors had found them. Money was raised to buy surrounding land, including on the other side of the Potomac in Maryland, and today visitors as a result can stand at Mount Vernon and soak in the very same vistas that inspired counterpart citizens more than two centuries ago. To help Americans immerse themselves in Washington's world and deepen their understanding of our nation's birth, the Ladies' Association built a magnificent visitor center and stocked it with artifacts. To speed scholarly study of Washington, they built a remarkable library and research center right on the premises where academics can work. Today, this most important of all presidential homes is still entirely owned and operated by the nonprofit Mount Vernon Ladies' Association. And let me tell you, the ladies are kicking it, hosting more than a million visitors each year, making Mount Vernon the most popular historic estate in the country. They raise an annual budget of $45 million through donations, allowing the nonprofit to continually refine the property and expand its public use without $1 of federal, state, or local government appropriation. Now jump to Montpelier, the family home of James Madison, who drafted most of our Constitution, played an important role in our revolutionary debates, and sat as president during the War of 1812. It remained privately owned until 1983, when it was donated for public visitation. The Montpelier Foundation was created as a dedicated charity to undertake one of the largest historic restoration projects of its kind, which returned the main house to the way it looked and operated during the last 20 years of James Madison's life. 
The foundation also created a center for study of the Constitution on the premises, all of this using private funding. And then there's Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's residence, sometimes described as his greatest creation. On this lovely hilltop, he generated not only an intriguing classical building that has influenced all of American architecture, but also many fascinating mechanical inventions, literary works, agricultural experiments, and other products of imagination. But Jefferson was not a practical man, and he died deeply in debt. His heirs had to immediately start selling off land, furniture, artwork, and more to cover the financial hole he left them in. Five years after Jefferson's death, the family had to sell the house itself. Within a very short time, the residence was a deteriorating hulk, and the estate had been dreadfully chopped up. In stepped Uriah Levy. He was the first Jew to serve a career as an officer in the United States Navy. He was a passionate believer in the freedom of religion that America had extended to his family, and grateful to Jefferson for the role he had played in establishing that landmark liberty. After his naval career, Levy had gone on to great success in real estate speculation, so he was a wealthy man. And when he learned that Jefferson's home was threatened, he purchased it in 1836 and restored it as a tribute to the man. The Levy family owned Monticello for nearly 90 years, far longer than even Jefferson himself. And then they eventually transferred the structure to the Thomas Jefferson Foundation to preserve it indefinitely. Since 1923, the private nonprofit has operated the home as a museum, historic site, and research center. As it approaches a century of charitable operation, Monticello is thriving and continuing to open new faces to the public. It recently added an impressive visitor center to the premises. And like the charities that preserve Montpelier and Mount Vernon, it does all of this with no public funding at all, relying instead on loyal donors and volunteers. This is actually a very widespread story in America. Not just these presidential homes, but many other top historic sites, including Williamsburg, Mystic Seaport, Sturbridge Village, Plymouth Plantation, Old Salem, Toro Synagogue, Greenfield Village, you name it. These are all products of philanthropy. You know, public entities like the National Park Service have had real problems recently with deferred maintenance and outdated visitor services and other management issues that can degrade land and buildings and artifacts and make it hard for Americans to experience their history in its full richness. In most cases, these charitable operators have done a much better job of bringing the past to light and protecting it for the future. And great job as always, Carl. And if you've not been to Mount Vernon or Montpelier or to Monticello, and Monticello is in beautiful and scenic Charlottesville, Virginia, where Alex and I both went. Alex is an undergraduate. I went to UVA as law school. Uh, This is a magnificent part of the country, Shenandoah, the Blue Ridge Mountains, the Shenandoah Valley. It's just spectacular. Um, and you're going to see history living and alive. Thanks, as always, to Carl, and thanks to the philanthropic efforts of Americans who've allowed these jewels, these gems of American history, to be present and in your lives. Uh, This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. Sweet charity, as always, from Carl Zinsmeister and the great folks at Philanthropy Roundtable, and pick up the great book that Carl wrote called The Almanac of American Philanthropy. Again, this is Our American Stories, the story of American philanthropy, generosity, and 
three of the great, great places to visit and take a family to visit. Montpelier, Mount Vernon, and Monticello. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history in 2010, a famous sea captain died, Captain Phil from Deadliest Catch. He wasn't the kind of man Americans get to meet very often on TV, at least not up till then. Not the kind of man TV writers know much about. They generally create soft, goofy men dominated by more capable and competent wives. That's the running motif with much of what's passing as entertainment on television. But not even the best screenwriter's imagination could have crafted a character like Captain Phil. And you're listening to Wanted, Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi, because that's the theme song, or was originally the theme song to this great show. This series, which debuted in 2005 on the Discovery Channel, changed the direction of reality TV. Up until then, we had Survivor and its knockoffs, American Idol, and its copycats, and by 2007, we got Keeping Up with the Kardashians, its ugly offspring, Jersey Shore, and the real housewives of, well, everywhere. Deadliest Catch was different. The show that is about much more than fishing spawned a different progeny. Reality shows that feature men, women, and families at work. Shows like Gold Rush, Pawn Kings, Cake Boss, Orange County Choppers. Shows that feature strangers and families working together, even praying together, as they do at the end of every Duck Dynasty episode. Deadliest Catch, it started it all. The show, if you've lived under a rock and never seen it, follows the lives of fishermen on the vast and brutal Bering Sea during two dangerous crab seasons, the October King Crab and the January Opelio. The work is hard, The work is dangerous, which is what makes Deadliest Catch so darn riveting. It's about real men toughing it out in the world's toughest sea under the toughest circumstances imaginable. Evil Knievel would pass on this gig if he were alive. Christopher Columbus would not have discovered America if the Atlantic were the Bering Sea. Those men go out on their boats hoping to reel in a big catch. They do so in sub-zero working conditions with rogue 30-foot waves tossing their ships around like toys and with ice formations piled up so high on deck that the ships seem like floating glaciers. What draws us to watch these men? Well, first and foremost, we want to see if they make it home alive. We also want to see if the risks they take pay off. Will they get a big payday? 
or will they come home empty? We hope against hope that those big metal pots they heave into the heartless ocean come back filled with treasure. Along the way, guys get injured. They bust noses and ribs, but they don't complain. They never lawyer up. They tape up their wounds. They get back to work. Sometimes they score big. Crewmen can make up to 15000 in a month, and a captain can make twice that and more. And yes, sometimes they come up empty, but there, there are no bailouts in deadliest catch. Unlike Wall Street bankers, nobody socializes their losses. It's especially fun watching the old-timers break in their greenhorn rookies. We watch them get heckled, teased, taunted, but know that what they're going through is what all the other crew members went through before. And we watch the proceedings safely and comfortably on our 60-inch flat-screen TVs, knowing one thing for sure, we wouldn't last an anchorage minute on those boats. If one man exemplified the spirit of those entrepreneurs of the sea, it was Captain Phil. He began fishing with his dad when he was eight. After high school, he began crab fishing for himself. He initially worked on a crab boat unpaid until he proved his worth. Some might call that exploitation. Captain Phil called it a good time and a great apprenticeship. This much we know, by the time he was 21, Harris was one of the youngest captains of a crab boat on the Bering Sea. Harris was not a perfect man, as we learned watching him. He had his struggles, and the show, it never hid them. But he was a natural leader and led by example. He didn't ask his men to do things he wouldn't do or hadn't done. He also understood that there were many ways to motivate men, and that did not always include screaming at them. He cared about his guys, and he used humor, and most important, he used food to build camaraderie, always cooking up some concoction in the galley. And he was tough. In one episode, Harris was thrown from his bunk during a storm, and he thought he'd broken his ribs. In pain, he pushed on, not wanting to abandon his guys. But after hours of coughing up blood, his crew convinced him to get help. Captain Phil, it turned out, had a pulmonary embolism which kept him docked for over a year. He returned to his beloved Cornelia Marie in January of 2009, but almost a year later to that day, he suffered a massive stroke. We watched as he came out of a coma. By the way, we were right there in the hospital. We watched as he started to show signs of progress. But those were rough waters even Captain Phil couldn't navigate. When he died, those of us who felt, felt like we knew him, well, we felt like we lost a friend. And he had friends from around the world. The show is seen in 150 countries. There were thousands of posts on websites and YouTube pages dedicated to the show. Said one admiring fan after learning of Captain Phil's death, quote, this is the type of man we should all be admiring. Not LeBron James or Tiger Woods or that fashion accessory Brad Pitt. Ordinary men who quietly do extraordinary things on a daily basis, like manage a business and on the Bering Sea no less. They are the ones we should aspire to be. This was the shortest post of all of them, and there were thousands. And it carried with it the feelings of millions of us who mourned his loss and celebrated his life 
Quote, a lord of the sea, no doubt. God bless you, Captain Phil. And so I wanted to share with you uh, a story that Captain Phil told, and it, it cuts to a lot of what we talk about, education, about career paths, about life and how we should think about our kids and how we should let them choose their way and find their ways. Turns out Captain Phil wasn't much of a high school student, and the counselors there didn't think much of him, and nobody really gave him a chance to make anything of his life, and he was sort of a troublemaker in school because he couldn't wait to just bust out. It felt a bit like prison to him. Well, the guys from Deadliest Catch were going on tour, and they were going from town to town, and on this particular occasion, someone had asked him to tell a story that cut to the heart of who he was. And while as only Captain Phil can do, here's a story about, well, some payback he gave to a high school counselor early on in his seafaring career. So the first year I went crab fishing, I was 17 years old and I made $130,000. So that was 50 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) So I went to the bank and I asked for $42,000 in cash. And I wanted it in a brown paper bag. (laughs) And I had a few drinks to pull the courage up for this. My counselor that voted me least likely to succeed, her house was for sale. And they wanted $40,000 for that house. (laughs) So I throw all the money in the bag. I go up to her house, I beat on the door. Her husband answers and I just marched right in. The counselor was in the kitchen making dinner. I walked in her kitchen, dumped the cash out, said, now get out. (laughs) She started crying and ran up in the bedroom and wouldn't come out because she felt like a (laughs) They wouldn't sell me the house. (laughs) And by the way, you notice the audience's spontaneous explosion when Phil walks into that house and dumps all the cash. Because that's every jerk who ever told you what you couldn't be. And it happens every day. And be careful as an adult telling your kids what they can't do or what they should be or what they shouldn't be. It's just a big old mistake. If you're a lawyer, don't make your kid be a lawyer. Let's have him figure out what he wants to be. And that's, I think, what really set this show on fire and again, watching all these different folks work. I mean, I'll never forget seeing even, even Dog the Bounty Hunter. I go, my goodness, that's a life. Somebody's doing that. And a family's getting employed, serving a vital function. And so when you find folks who love making fun of reality TV, just keep in mind that Captain Phil was a loved guy, that he taught us all about life, and particularly about fishing. And I'll never again look at a king crab the same way because I know what men and some women do, because at the end there were even some women who were starting to join uh, with the troops in this really, frankly, just brutal life. I could never do it. I wouldn't even volunteer to do it for a day. That's how, that's how tough this life is. So on this day in history, in 2010, a great man died, Captain Phil Harris of Deadliest Catch. And as always, all of our This Days in History brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the finer things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Their 16 great online courses are available at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. This is Our American Stories.